Welcome to the Sports Docs Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bassett. And I'm Dr. Katherine Logan. On each episode, we chat about the most recent developments in sports medicine and dissect through all the noise so you know which literature should actually impact your practice. On today's episode, we're focusing on patellofemoral cartilage defects with Dr. Cassandra Lee, an orthopedic sports medicine surgeon, team physician for UC Davis and the Sacramento Republic FC, and chief of the sports medicine service at UC Davis. Dr. Lee has published on and spoken a lot about cartilage, both at the basic science level as well as clinical application, so we're excited to have her join the discussion today. We have some great articles for you that contribute well to our conversation on surgical treatment of patellofemoral cartilage disease. As always, links to all the papers that we discuss on the show can be found on our podcast website. The first article is a systematic review published just this month in OJSM titled Cartilage Restoration for Isolated Patellar Chondral Defects. Ronak Patel and his colleagues at the Illinois Center for Orthopedic Research and Education summarize the results and complication rates of various patellar cartilage restoration techniques. They concluded that osteochondral autograft transplantation and autologous chondrocyte implantation were the most studied procedures for isolated patellar chondral defects. The article also touches upon newer techniques such as augmented microfracture, but the authors state that there is wide variability in indications and techniques that must be clarified in future higher-level studies. Then, from the upcoming June issue of Arthroscopy this year, we review a retrospective cohort study titled Utilization of Autologous Chondrocyte Implantation in the Knee is Increasing While Reoperation Rates are Decreasing Despite Increasing Preoperative Comorbidities. Drew Lansdowne and his team at UCSF observed a significant increase in the use of ACI since 2017, with a significant decrease in the rate of 90-day and two-year reoperations for ACIs performed after 2017. Older age and tobacco use were predictors of increased risk of conversion to arthroplasty. Male sex was associated with decreased risk of reoperation. We are joined today by Dr. Cassandra Lee, a board-certified fellowship-trained orthopedic sports medicine surgeon and chief of the sports medicine service at UC Davis. Dr. Lee obtained her medical degree from Boston University. She completed her residency training in Wake Forest University and sports medicine fellowship at Washington University in St. Louis, serving as the team physician for the Washington University Bears, St. Louis Rams, and St. Louis Blues. Dr. Lee was a 2017 Lars Peterson Traveling Fellow for the International Cartilage Regeneration and Joint Preservation Society and a 2022 American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine, Asian Pacific Knee Arthroscopy and Sports Medicine Society Traveling Fellow. She currently serves as a team physician for collegiate and professional teams, including UC Davis and the Sacramento Republic FC. Her research interests are in modulation of post-traumatic osteoarthritis, currently funded by an NIH and Department of Defense grants. So welcome to the show, Cassandra. Thanks so much again for joining us tonight for this discussion. Thanks for having me, Ashley. Awesome. So we know this topic is of great interest to you. You've published on and spoken a lot about cartilage, both at the basic science level as well as clinical application. We're hoping to dive a little bit more into the latter today and specifically focus on the patellofemoral joint. So the articles we chose for discussion to lead our discussion today all focus on the surgical side of treatment. But before we focus on that, we kind of wanted to touch a little bit on non-operative treatment. So Let's say we have a patient, symptomatic, full thickness, cartilage lesion, isolated to the patella, no instability. 
Are you trying some conservative treatment for this patient? Are there some factors, patient age or lesion factors that would guide you one way or the other? I think in general, I'm really conservative when I do treat my patients. Oftentimes cartilage, we know that there are incidental findings. There's plenty of research out there from Curl's paper and arthroscopy and then some of the Danish registry data that tells us that we're going to have incidental cartilage findings. The tough part is trying to figure out what is actually symptomatic versus not, right? We don't want to over-treat, but we all definitely don't want to under-treat. So I think everything is worthwhile for a trial of conservative treatment, whether that be even injections. But I think PT, mechanics, and all that stuff is, is really important to optimize uh, patients um, the first go-around. Because if you do go down that road towards something more surgical, more invasive, then they are teed up and ready, set up for success afterwards. You mentioned um, injections. Are you doing like a mix um, of things? And depending on the age, are you doing cortisone, gel, PRP? What kind of things are you doing in your practice? That's a great question, Catherine. I, I wish I knew the right answer as to what the heck to inject. I think with, uh, I mean, the reality is if you look at how insurance works, you have to do cortisone first. So I think a singular injection is not going to be that problematic. Um, in terms of, you know, what we worry about with cartilage damage, bone damage and whatnot, because between the, you know, the canes, the, you know, your local anesthetic that Connie Chu has showed us is contratoxic and, um, and cortisone that I'm sure is not the nicest thing in the world to anything. But I think everything is worthwhile for a singular injection, right? We're not talking about what we did back in the seventies of multiple injections every, every week before games. That's not the right thing to do clearly. Right. Um, so I think, uh, I always start with something very conservative. So cortisone and whichever cane you'd like. I, we have lidocaine stock, but I sometimes jump to pipicane because there's some evidence that that may be less chondrotoxic versus the other canes. And honestly, it's dealer's choice. Um, Viscal supplementation is also, also always something worthwhile to trial, but a lot with Blue Cross Blue Shields, you just can't get it approved, right? And then, um, then obviously there's PRP, but I think it depends on market. Uh, so my market here in my, my area is not a big out-of-pocket paying area. So I don't think PRP is a hugely successful yeah. business, you know. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, my practice is similar, except there, you know, there's probably some appetite for PRP, um, but it's definitely not never the first thing people are going for, you know, and I agree with that too. It's sort of, you know, not only is um, a cortisone type injection the first step insurance wise, it's also, you know, the, the least expensive. It's going, it doesn't have the authorizations, all those sort of things. So it's a little bit of a simple, oh, do you have authorizations? I just found something that's becoming a little bit more interesting and yeah. I don't know, interesting in a good way or interesting, like great. Mm more stuff to deal with. Um, our insurance companies in this area seem like they're changing and we now require authorization, prior authorization for even cortisone. No. Yeah. So no. guys, wait for it coming down the pike. I know it's going ha right now in North, uh, Northern California. So. Wow. That's such a shame because I feel like we start with cortisone, you know, as, as you're, at least I order, I do cortisone and then I order the Visco authorization so that when it comes back in, we can do that. And then PRP is always our last step. Um, but that's, that would be really disappointing. You have a patient in pain. You want to be able to do some sort of like a drainage and an injection or just an injection. You're not even able to do that. It's so frustrating. Exactly. So, yeah. I agree, Ashley. Very, very frustrating. I guess the other part, um, maybe I can probably pick Catherine's brain on this, but mm -hmm. the idea is like, okay, so now we have uh, what if we do PRP and Visco, right? If you look from mm -hmm. a scientific standpoint, the tribology, this is where I nerd out a little bit, so I mm -hmm. apologize. But if you look at the tribology and the um, 
kind of viscoelastic properties and how the lubrication properties are pretty similar. So they almost look like they're synergistic. So from a scientific standpoint, I think it makes sense to put the two together to kind of see if they're synergistic, but I don't have the clinical data to back that up. But I have a feeling that, you know, if you have a little bit more um, kind of biologics practice, you might have a little bit more experience, or I, I think I've heard, you know, Brian Cole's group talk about adding the two together. Yeah, I think I never, I generally go down the path of like, okay, let's try cortisone first. Um, let's do some physical therapy. I definitely spend a lot of time on mechanics. And then um, because also my population tends to be younger, that's where gel can be difficult, right? So even if like they might have some radiologic sort of parameters that meet the criteria. They're like, they're under 40. What are you doing? You know, they, they don't even want to consider it. And then um, if they're still sort of interested in sort of saying, okay, I'm doing better. I've kind of checked all these boxes. I'm still trying to avoid surgery. Then I think that's when we'll do the PRP. So there's a little bit of a delay, you know, between each one. So it's really hard to know, like, you know, how much are these additive versus did one just work better? You know, I, I don't really know. You know, or delayed, I yeah, I was going to say, or delayed onset of helping too, right? We always quote, like I quote like three to five days for cortisone, four weeks from last injection for visco, PRP, four to six, you know, we see. And so I don't think, you know, people say, oh, the, um, the visco didn't help me. It was the physical therapy or like yeah. the cortisone didn't help me. It was this, you know, we don't, we don't really know. And it's probably a combination, but I really liked what you said, Cassandra, that you're trying everything. And at worst, it's optimizing you for surgery, right? You're getting stronger. You're getting used to the, you know, PRP. You're, you're, you know, figuring out how you're going to manage this after. And so it's, it's not wasted time is what I try to tell my patients. Like you're, you're working towards a common goal of getting better. If you don't, then we ultimately consider surgery. Yeah. Right. And I, but I think it also boils down to like how much buy-in do you get? Right. And I think yeah. that's definitely something that's, you see it hashed out within the literature, right? So the Europeans probably tend to be a little bit more believing in the physical physiotherapy part of it versus uh, the U.S. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I think it is, it is hard because if you have someone go in, come into your office and say like, oh, I've done PT before, you know, and then when you really like get into it, they're like, I've done a session. I got a yeah. home program. I got like a sheet, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And they haven't really changed anything. And it's really hard to get them to sort of buy in and be like, no, it actually like, is very important. You go see a good physical therapist, you get a good biomechanical analysis, you make these changes. Um, you know, it's obviously a lot of time in the office going through all that sort of stuff to sort of get their buy-in when at the end of the day, they're like, just inject something. <laughs> just like, right. What <laughs> Exactly. Like, I wish I had that magic fairy dust injection. We're just not there yet. So awesome. So that was a great discussion on the non-op side. So let's switch to our favorite side, which is the surgical treatment. So the systematic review by Ronak Patel and his team really nicely outlined all of the traditional cartilage surgical treatments we have, as well as some of the newer treatments. So we did a whole um, episode last season um, with Clayton actually looking at the traditional treatments. So microfracture, um, ACI, osteochondral autograph, and allograft transplant. So today I kind of wanted to focus on some of the newer techniques that maybe our listeners haven't heard about, starting with um, advanced or augmented microfracture. So Cassandra, could you explain what makes augmented microfracture different than traditional microfracture? So I think, Ashley, we think about, um, go back to tissue engineering principles. So come back with me to the lab. Sorry, I'm taking you there. But the idea is you need to look at what signals do you need to do the right thing at the right time, right? So you need cells, you need the right cells, whatever that may be. They're not stem cells, you know, 
Uh, we can go in a whole tirade about how they're not, they're master signaling cells, whatever type of cells, whatever cells you choose, you need to have cells there, right? They have to do the right work. Then you have to have the right signal. Then you have to have the right scaffold. So you need to have like the, the structure there to help support that tissue that you're trying to try to regenerate or grow. So when, when you look at augmented microfracture, you know, we have plenty of literature showing how microfracture is successful, right? It is the first line of treatment. It's for small um, lesions. It's for, um, it has good durable outcomes for about two years. And some patients do well, some patients do horribly, right? Because we know it's fibrocartilage, it's type one collagen. It's not articular cartilage or articular or hyaline like cartilage, which is type two collagen. So the idea is like, how do you stabilize that microfracture clot? How do you make that fibrin clot turn into something more organized, more structurally sound? So again, tissue engineering principle. So when we look at augmented microfractures, one of the original ones um, that's been described in Europe is using a type 1, 3 collagen membrane that's off the shelf. So it's shelf stable, ready to go at any point. And it's a type 1, 3, I just said that, type 1, 3 collagen membrane, and it's called autologous matrix induced chondrogenesis. So AMIC because it's otherwise it's too much of a mouthful to say. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea is that you're using a type one, three collagen membrane. So it has different sides. So there's one side that's um, a little bit more rough, a little, another side that's a little bit more smooth. So it tries to recreate that almost periosteum or a different type of um, tissue so that the cells can grow into the clot can be stabilized by the rough side. And then the smooth side is more protected on the surface side. So again, just trying to make that more organized, more structurally sound, microfracture clot, microfracture product. Um, I know there's another market. There's something else on the market. It was in Europe and in um, Canada, but I think Smith and Nephew took it off the market, but it was Kytosan. How cool is that? It's trip shell proteins. Um, Cassandra, do you find that you are using these augmented techniques much in practice or is it just like you know, because I think we also have to think about things we already talked about a little bit of like availability, cost, authorization, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes some of the cartilage procedures are very specific on the payer as well as the plan. Um, so if we're kind of putting that aside for a second, like where do you find the value in microfracture in your practice at this point or augmented microfracture? So Catherine, I think microfracture is almost the bad word in the in, in <laughs> like the m word i don't know yeah there's no such thing as m word but it is the m word and the idea is i think with the idea of damaging that subchondral bone and damaging and potentially burning bridges in the future i think microfracture certainly seems to be falling by the wayside i don't think it's completely gone i think there is a small subsection of uh indications for this um but that with that in mind i don't microfracture is not a big part of my cartilage practice I think usually in the younger patients, um, but even then, I, I don't. You know, you might micro drill, you might um, micro pick it, as opposed to like get a, you know a nice thin hole that allows that you don't do like impaction grafting of your large all in there. Um, so I think we've changed the idea, of the principles of how we quote microfracture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another technique that we haven't um, chatted about yet before we've kind of mentioned Macy. So before we get to Macy. Um, the other technique they talked about in the systematic review was particulate juvenile articular cartilage or de novo. Um, so as you know, um, but just for the listeners, it's an allograft articular cartilage from donors younger than 13, um, and it's cut into one millimeter cubes. Um, is this a part of your practice at all? Um, admittedly, it's not a large practice, part of my practice, um, but I know that there's plenty of people around the country that um, it is a part of their practice, um, or maybe if not part of your practice, Cassandra, did you see it when you were abroad? Mm-hmm. 
So Catherine, I actually didn't see it when we were abroad because I think a lot of places don't have allograft. Yeah. Right. That's why there's some really interesting surgeries out there. I think um, particularly juvenile cartilage is an interesting concept. I feel like it has it. It's been around for a long time, right? Because it went, it, it became approved easily because it's an allograft product. Yeah. But I don't think it's come to fruition enough to be a major player on the stage of anything. Um, I think what we ran into is that it's expensive. Yeah. Right. So I think the authorization is kind of limited. I think it's not quite off the shelf. It is a little bit off the shelf, but it has an expiration. Right. So it had some great advantages in that it's juvenile cartilage. These tiny chiclets are full of hypercellular, you know, chondrocytes. So you have a lot of cells. Presumably you have some matrix that helps it signal. So you have part of it. Right. But you don't have the scaffold. Right. So you don't have it's not the triple threat. Right. So I think if you start looking at things that are now on the market that are also allograft products. There are other stuff that might be easier to use mm -hmm. and maybe more likely to be covered by insurance. Yeah. Ashley, did you, are you using it in your practice at all? No. no. And I never even saw it. And obviously we trained in the same residency. I didn't see it there. And then I didn't see it in um, fellowship either, but we were just talking about um, Bob Spang, who was a co-resident of mine at HSS. He saw it a lot. Um, so I think it depends on where, where you're doing your training or where you're working, but I never saw it and I, I haven't used it. Yeah. All right. Well then let's just switch gears to Macy. Yeah. Cause I think we're all using that. We all just, we all just <laughs> want to get to Macy's. So let's, let's just, <laughs> let's just <laughs> switch gears. <laughs> all right, Ashley. Um, so I know you and I have talked at length about Macy before, but Cassandra, mm -hmm. um, when you're sort of discussing Macy as an option uh, to patients, obviously you're, you've already sort of alluded to talking a little bit, is this a surface lesion, is bone involved, you know, and sort of walking the patient through all these options and why we make these choices. But what would be like the broad strokes of when you implement Macy into your, into your practice? So Catherine, I think Macy is a pretty big part of my practice. Um, it, what makes it so enticing is that it is moldable to anything. So oftentimes I wish I could say that I have that singular condylar lesion. I've never seen that. I wish that existed in my practice. I have the, okay, revise this, revise that. How many holes am I looking at? So I have a lot of, uh, I think a lot of my practice is actually patellofemoral. So I think in trochleas, it makes it very easy to have it fit. I do have a lot of patellas and I think there are good options for isolated patella, but I don't get isolated patellas. I don't get isolated lesions. So um, when I walk a patient through this, um, I often talk to them about like, okay, there's options. We can try allograft. We can try autograft. What does that mean? That means that I have to scope you. But in general, anytime I look at cartilage, I look at the scope as part of the diagnosis. I think arthroscopy is such a minimal, minimally invasive surgery. Um, that I tell them that this is part of the diagnosis. What makes that visit so long is that, well, if, if A, then B, if, if C, then D, like there's so many variables, right? So if patients want like a single stage, I think it's really hard to kind of predict because in general, we know that there's plenty of studies out there that show that your cartilage lesion is not what you think it is when you get in there. The MRI will underestimate all the time, right? So, you know, that is, and so I've been working with actually a startup company and they're looking at how to like take our MRI images and can you, can you um, actually localize and see what the lesion is pre-op. And it's just been kind of fascinating to see kind of what, what, if this is a doable thing or not. So we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of still kinks to work out, but it's an interesting concept if we can make that more accurate, especially now that our MRIs are 3T. Yeah. I mean, I think that's within grasp to make that a little bit more accurate, but I think until then, 
a diagnostic scope is easy. And then honestly, nanoscopes and needle scopes. I mean, it's, I don't know if you guys have actually done an intro in the office, but I keep on wanting to do it in the office. I just haven't quite figured out how to get it approved and all that stuff. So we haven't done in the office yet. I've used it in the OR. Um, so I've used it often. Um, the way I started using it was more as um, like an aside to like an ankle fracture or whatever you want to pop in the joint. You have like a loose body in there or something like that. It's just a really easy way. And that was sort of my first intro, but I really like it. And then I'm sure, you know, there's multiple people starting to use it in the office. Um, but yeah, I think that I don't have a great setup for like a procedure room. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think like, the larger aspect of my clinic is more dedicated to like a lot of like biomotion testing and exercise testing. And um, I don't want to give that up. <laughs> I mean, I think that's great to have that ability to do like that motion analysis. Cause that's, I think that's what sets our patients apart or, or, you know, how our practice is apart, but yeah, it'd be nice. I mean, I have a lot of non-op partners, so they have, you know, we're set up for a procedure room so that they can do their ultrasound guided, whatever injections. So so I was going to say, so for, for Macy, there's the, it's approved for 18 to 55. Um, is there a hard age cutoff for you, for Macy, or lesion characteristic kind of cutoff? Um, you mentioned you take care of bipolar lesions or multiple lesions. Um, is there a certain point at which you deem someone not a Macy candidate? How are you approaching um, these patients to determine if they're candidates? Wow. That's a mouthful. All right, Ashley, let's, let's break this down. Okay. So I think when you look at a, when a patient, when I consider Macy, um, so it depends, they, they probably actually do come and ask for that, right? Because a lot of patients don't want metal. They don't want ear replacement. They're like, what can I do? So the bottom, first things first, look at alignment, right? So whatever their alignment is, um, where are the lesions? How bad are the lesions? How joint space narrow they are, right? So I think when you're looking at 50% joint space narrowing or more, then that's kind of it's not a hard stop, but it's making you start saying, well, you know, this may not exactly work and we need to do a little bit of reality check. Right. So, um, but it's a long discussion with the patient and we talk about what their expectations are, what they want to do. I don't know. I think, you know, you guys are, I know Catherine's in Colorado. I'm in Northern California. You know, patients are not, you know, aging as much as we think they are. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. 50 is a new 40 and whatever, 60 is a new 50, whatever, right? No one's aging, right? Yeah. So <laughs> so patients are expecting and demanding more, right? If they're pickleball players, you know, they want to be back on that damn pickleball court yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. So I shouldn't say damn, it's such a fun game. I mean, I would agree with that. So um, yeah, so I think a lot of it's expectations, yeah. what activity levels there are, um, how far gone is a joint, how much are they willing to go through? You know, when I have that 29, 30-year-old patient who has that, you know, revision ACL times two, then they have meniscectomy and then subtonal meniscectomy. And they're like, yeah, my needle side, my knee hurts. And then you start working them up. You see their scanogram, their varus alignment, their joint space is maybe 50% joint space narrow, joint space narrowing, maybe 75% if you kind of squint hard enough. Right. Then you start going, well, but you're only 30. What are your options? Right. I'm not going to put a uni in you. That's going to fail. Um, so that's when we started taking like, Hey, this is a reality check. I can, you're going to, this is going to be a journey with me, but I'm going to cut your tibia. I'm going to realign you. I'm going to put a new meniscus in. Cause I don't know if it's the meniscus that's causing the pain and joint overload, or is it the cartilage itself? And we're going to throw cartilage in it. Cause all those three together should in theory help you take some of that strain off that needle compartment. Right. So yeah. It's just a big journey in terms of talking about what their expectations are, what I can deliver. 
those 55 year olds, sometimes they're physiologically 55, sometimes they're physiologically 65, right? And you just, sometimes you don't know until you've tried. Yeah. And I think you've already touched on this, Cassandra, but it, it, you know, just having that discussion to really, you know, say, Hey, here's like, you know, you have to make an educated decision at the end of the day, but here's some of the reasons why you might not be a perfect candidate, but here's like some of the constraints of why I don't want to do some of the other things. Um, that article um, by Lansdowne um, from UCSF uh, reported that older age and tobacco were associated with the increased risk to conversion to arthroplasty. Um, I know, I think Ashley knows I, there's like, no, I don't have any smokers. It's just not a thing Must around be here nice. besides <laughs> green things, but like, <laughs> but nicotine's just not really popular here. Um, do you guys see a lot of smokers in your practice? being on the coast? I would say, Catherine, that Northern California, I don't really see smokers. I feel like every time I go traveling, like people still smoke. Yeah. <laughs> but then I, I, then I, what I forget is that people vape. Right. I don't know what they're vaping. It could be nicotine. It could be uh, sure. marijuana. I don't know, but I do see that. Right. Yeah. So. So do you restrict like um, say, say they're vaping nicotine and you're going to do a cartilage procedure on them. Do you make them quit? Do you make them demonstrate smoking cessation? Is it only uh, tobacco smoking that you do that? I'm going to stop asking you seven questions at the same time. No, <laughs> I, no I think they're all really – this is great. Thank you. No, I, I actually, I think um, – yeah, those are all great things, but I'm not entirely 100% sure how to check nicotine besides look at, have them pee in a cup, and I yeah. think you can measure nicotine, yeah. but I usually give the fear okay. of God talk. I'm like, look, you are – we're going on this journey together. It's up to you. You're asking me to salvage your knee. This is – this is the best shot. So you can, this is all elective. This is everything you can do to, you know, be better. I mean, even at some point I tell them like, okay, no NSAIDs, take off sugars, you know, try to clean up your diet. I mean, everything, every bit helps, right? For listening to this episode of the Sports Docs. We hope you enjoyed the first part of our discussion as much as we did. On the next episode, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Cassandra Lee and shift our focus to osteochondral allograft transplantation and the addition of osteotomies in the management of patellofemoral cartilage disease. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on all things sports medicine. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review. You can also reach us by email at thesportsdocspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at thesportsdocspod. We love your feedback.